This is a special two-hour edition of Charlotte Talks, Immigration Policy in the Queen City, a public conversation from McGlowan Theater at Spirit Square. I'm Mike Collins. Building a wall on our southern border and getting illegal immigrants out of the country was a constant theme in Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Each time he mentioned it, he was met with thunderous ovations from his followers, and it didn't take long for President Donald Trump to begin work on fulfilling that promise. We've ordered a crackdown on sanctuary cities that refuse to comply with federal law and that harbor criminal aliens, and we've ordered an end to the policy of catch and release on the border. No more release. No matter who you are, release. We've begun a nationwide effort to remove criminal aliens, gang members, drug dealers, and others who pose a threat to public safety. We are saving American lives every single day and are even creating a new office in Homeland Security dedicated to the forgotten American victims of illegal immigrant violence, of which there are many. Some people are so surprised that we're having strong borders. Well, that's what I've been talking about for a year and a half, strong borders. Much of the media doesn't get it. They actually get it, but they don't write it. Let's put it that way. For those on the potential receiving end of this administration's tougher approach, the result has been confusion and fear, but also determination. conviction, then you should be deported. We don't believe that. We do not believe that. We believe that everybody deserves second chances. We have to stand up for our rights, speak up, and not let these executive orders crush our rights. Over the course of the next two hours, we will explore how this nation of immigrants got to this point. We'll hear the perspective of law enforcement, the personal stories of those directly affected, and take your questions and comments both here at the McGlowan Theater and also from those listening to the live broadcast on Tuesday nights. Listeners can reach us through email at charlottetalks at wfae.org, on Facebook or on Twitter using the hashtag WFAEPubCon. We begin tonight with a comparison. President Obama was once referred to as the deporter-in-chief because of the number of illegal immigrants forced out of the country during his administration. So what really changed with President Trump's executive orders? How do his policies differ from what came before? What is happening to immigrants here and around the country? And how much of the fear roiling through the immigrant community 
is based on facts on the ground versus rumors spread by social media. Dr. Margaret Cummins is Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the International Studies Program at Queen's University of Charlotte. Thank you for joining us on the stage here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Ron Woodard is a very brave man and a long-distance driver. He is a he's director of NC Listen, a grassroots organization advocating a major reduction in most categories of immigration, and he drove down today from Raleigh to be with us. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And throughout the program, the job of keeping us straight on the facts will fall to Tom Bullock from WFAE News. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Uh, let me start with you. If President Obama was the deporter-in-chief, documenting uh, uh, deporting more undocumented immigrants than any other president before him, what does that make Donald Trump? How have things changed? Well, I don't think that comparison is fair just directly. Let's consider this. Under eight years of President Barack Obama, uh, if memory serves me right, he deported just over 2.5 million immigrants. Mm -hmm. That's where he got the moniker deporter-in-chief. Where he focused, I think, so far is where the differences lie, because there's no way, no matter the rhetoric, that Donald Trump would be able to come to that number so quickly. So what is the difference? Um, under President Barama, Barack Obama, I'm sure most people remember the idea of felons, not families. It, does this sound familiar to everyone, I'm sure? The idea was simple. It was um, really focusing on those with criminal convictions. Uh, gang members, drug dealers, people who have a criminal conviction that would then be deported. What's, what has changed um, since January 20th, when Donald Trump was inaugurated, the 45th president, is simple. The category is now wide open. Virtually anyone here illegally could be deported under this new guidance that's been sent out to the Department of Homeland Security. Well, in that opening clip, we heard the president say that his administration has begun a nationwide effort to remove criminal aliens who pose a threat to public safety. So mm -hmm. two questions. Has there been a noticeable, verifiable increase in the arrests of undocumented immigrants? And if so, do those being arrested fall exclusively in that category? Um, no and no is okay. the, the quick way to say it. To, to focus first on the overall category, if you actually go through and read the memo um, that they're using now in terms of deportation, um, you'll see that the category is not just someone who is convicted of a violent crime, but who is simply charged with a crime, which could even mean in some cases it's been seen as something as simple as a traffic offense. That, I don't think, poses a direct threat to public safety uh, in the same way that was seen by the Obama administration. In terms of uh, verifying that only those people were being rounded up, uh, the answer is no. I mean, everything so far has been based on anecdotal evidence, but that anecdotal evidence is spreading and it's not just on social media. There are reports in the Washington Post of, you know, spots where day laborers gather in Arlington, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., um, of ICE arresting some people and then just grabbing the other people who were there to see if they were, in fact, here legally. That is permissible by law. Mm. Um, you're hearing more and more of the, there's a, a really fascinating New York Times story about um, customs agents boarding a plane at, I believe it was JFK, it was a New York airport, where they checked the documentation of people on the plane before they allowed them to go into the jetway because they were looking specifically for a, a specific person. However, that is, I mean, I've flown through a lot of airports. I have never seen that happen before. So, uh, this, as you said, this, he's, he's broadened the category of who's eligible mm -hmm. to be rounded up. So could it be argued, and will it be argued, has it been argued, 
that if you cross the border illegally, mm-hmm. you are therefore a criminal and therefore can be arrested as a criminal because you crossed the border, you crossed the border illegally. That is a, I know this sounds like a, I'm punting on the question, but that is actually a legal definition as, it's, as opposed to a civil, <clears throat> a full-on criminal offense. But the, to the core of the issue, yes. I mean, under this new guidance, virtually all of the 11 million people here illegally, in this country illegally, could be deported. And there are other steps of this too. There's the, you know, the expedited deportation process. There's a bunch of other things that I'm sure we'll get into. But here's the trick. As we speak live here tonight, in a few hours, we will hear from President Donald Trump when he gives his speech to a joint session of Congress. And what has come out today, which is fascinating to me, is a sign of possibly a change. And I say possibly because you just never know. I I remember the last time I was actually in this theater was listening to Donald Trump lay out his plan to revitalize America's inner cities. Even at that rally, you heard the chant, build the wall. But now there are signals that he may be looking for some kind of a compromise immigration overhaul. Yeah, he told people today, TV reporters today, Mm -hmm. that the time is right for an immigration bill as long as there is compromise on both sides. Yeah. How's the going to sit with people who voted for Donald Trump who were very unhappy with the immigration situation the way it is today? I think he, it is a minefield politically, potentially. Um, I think you've got all kinds of minefields here. I mean, one of the things, to be clear, again, we don't know details yet. We don't know if he'll even lay out the details yet. But there are statements that there may be a way for uh, people here illegally to uh, be able to stay and work. Details to come. And they wouldn't have to leave the country to come back in, according Possibly. to what we heard this afternoon. But Yes, but given the animate feeling of a lot of Republicans in the Congress, I'm not sure that would stick. There's another side of it, too, which is dreamers. And this is something that's really fascinating, because um, for actually a little while now, Donald Trump has said dreamers do not need to worry about deportation. Mm. They haven't necessarily trusted him. I think given the 180-degree turnaround when it comes to something like transgender rights, it's a fair concern to have. But we'll have to see what the details are. What's fascinating, though, is there is movement here from a man who literally would come out on stage, and I saw a lot of rallies covering him here in North Carolina, where the most chanted line was build the wall. And that is more than just about the physical wall. It was red meat during the campaign, and uh, his quick action on these executive orders seemed to be following through on the red meat. And Dr. Uh, Margaret Cummins is here from uh, Queens University of Charlotte, where she knows a lot about the history of immigration in this country and over the the course of our uh, 200-and-some-year history. Uh, It is clear, doctor, that uh, public sentiment against illegal immigrants or immigration in general seems to be uh, pretty high. It seems to be a recurring theme. So how does what's happening today compare with what has happened in years gone by? It's actually quite similar to what's happened in years gone by. And I was looking at some polls before I came over. And if you look at, say, Gallup or Pew, you actually 65 to 70 percent of the American people want undocumented immigrants who are here now to have a path to legal status. So there are majorities of people in this country, there's a, it's close to 70% do not want to build a wall. So actually public sentiment is quite open to a path to legal status for people who are here. Um, what there is a very strong and very vocal minority and it's very concentrated in the Republican party. So if you look, if you break down those numbers by party affiliation, then you have 70, 80% of Republicans who don't want a path to legal status. But if you include Democrats and independents, then you get somewhat different numbers. Mm-hmm. But this is a dynamic that we've seen 
time and again in our history. You have, this is the second largest period of immigration in our history. We had another large period between 1880 and 1920, um, which actually was higher as a percentage of the total population. And you had the same sort of backlash against immigration at that time. In fact, it ended up in the 1920s with a series of laws that severely restricted immigration and restricted immigration to people who were of European and mainly Northern European heritage. But we also had a crackdown on Mexicans, if I'm not mistaken, in the 1930s and again in the 1950s during the Eisenhower administration, right. during something that was unfortunately named as Operation Wetback. Yes. Uh, what triggered those two episodes? Uh, economic downturns. So in the 1930s, it was clearly the Depression. The interesting thing is even in the 20s when we passed these restrictions, those restrictions did not apply to Latin America. So southern growers, western ranchers were able to write into the legislation that these restrictions on immigration, on the numbers of immigrants who could come, would not apply to Latin America, and that's because they wanted to be able to maintain access to, um, to a cheap labor force, essentially. Um, but when public sentiment goes against that for larger economic questions, then the enforcement comes in. But between 1930 and 1950, there was a period when we kind of looked the other way toward Absolutely. immigrants, particularly from Mexico, because all the American guys had been conscripted and gone off to World War II. We needed them in the factories. We needed them in the fields. Right. Could it be said then that the same thing has happened during the modern era? We need them to build houses. We need them to pick uh, strawberries. I think you would absolutely say the same thing is going on. You know, in fact, we had a program with Mexico called the with Mexico called the Barcero program, where we actually negotiated with the Mexican government to bring people over during World War II when we didn't have enough labor here. And um, post-1986, which is the last time we had serious immigration reform, where we've had again an increase in the number of undocumented immigrants. Um, it's pretty clear that, that there is a blind eye being turned to it. Mm. And if you talk to businesses, if you talk to growers, I mean, if there are North Carolina growers, there was an article in the Charlotte Observer yesterday about North Carolina growers don't want you know, undocumented migrants to be shipped out because they need them to work. Yeah, and if I may just really quickly, a lot of times we'll hear, and we're doing it as well, you'll hear the phrase Mexicans. And we need to acknowledge the fact that this is not just from people from Mexico. Right. Um, it's, it's become an umbrella term for really what we mean as the broader Latin America. Right. Um, I just want to point that out because it is not just one category from one country. It is a much broad, broader And group. it's not just from Latin America. If you look at sure. people who are coming here without documentation now, the over 50% of them come not over the southern border yep. but on a legal visa and overstay it. Ron Woodard has been sitting here taking notes. He's the director of NC Listen. They, uh, you have said, your organization has said, that immigration is out of control in America. And I'm just curious how you reacted to the news that President Trump may be open to a compromise. Well, I guess it depends on what the compromise is. I was taking notes because I was interested in all the misinformation that I thought came out. Uh, but let me, let me throw this out. I understand it's a two-sided issue, but uh, we allow a million immigrants into this country every year. The two ethnic groups we treat the most generously are Hispanics and Asians. The country retreat the most generously with legal immigration every year and a half of the last 20 years is Mexico. So this notion that America somehow, we take in more immigrants than anybody else in the world. I don't think we need to apologize, therefore, for asking people to obey our laws. This business of labor, there's a hint of labor shortage. 
There is no labor shortage. We have a labor surplus. I'll be the first person to tell you that I don't believe Americans want to do stoop farm labor. Quite frankly, neither do Hispanics who come over here to do that work. That's how they wound up on the construction site. I don't blame them. They don't want to do it either. I've actually done farm work. It's very hard. But only 5% of illegal immigrants in our country are doing farm work. The other 95%, I would make the case, are taking jobs that people have done and will do. This notion that Americans won't frame a house is absurd. It's almost insulting. Uh, what has happened in, in today is you've got businesses, and I'm pro-business, but you've got business people today who their approach is this. Uh, I will offer you a wage that I wish I could pay. And if no one accepts that wage, I then get to go hire illegal labor. I thought the way capitalism was supposed to work, regardless of your ethnic group, was when you apply for a job and someone offers you a wage and you don't like it, you can certainly hope to get a higher wage. And if the business doesn't get anyone to respond to that wage, then they should raise their wages. And at some point, someone's going to go do that work, I don't, although I don't think that'll work with farming. But that's only 5% of the illegal immigrant labor. This notion that Americans are for legalization, let me, look, I've, I've read a lot of polls. I've been involved with this since 1986. The polls that come out usually ask someone, do you want, uh, are you in favor of legalization or rounding people up? That's like asking someone, do you want a broken arm or a broken leg? When you ask the poll that says, do you want to round someone up or a pathway to citizenship, or just enforce our laws, guess which one the, the most people pick? Enforce our laws, because they know our country is very generous with legal immigration. And that's your first step. Uh, you have four points uh, in terms of how we can change things in America. Your first step is to enforce immigration laws. Is that what the president is doing, in your opinion, with the executive order that was stayed by the court and his second uh, initiative? It appears to me, from what I read in the media, I don't have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the president, of course, and I know you know that, but from what I can uh, tell, the intent of the focus, in other words, he's a business person. I did that. I was in, a, in the high-tech industry for 30, 35 years. I understand what the word focus means. So he said they were focusing on criminal aliens, but when someone is arrested or someone goes to a crime, I'm not, I'm not here to say that illegal immigrants in general are a bunch of criminals. It is a crime to cross the border, and most illegals that stay here long enough have to steal somebody's identity to do that. That's just sort of what happens. But I don't look at illegal immigrants as some kind of evil, bad people. I think I know why most people come here. They want to make their life better. Well, so what? The rest of Americans want to make their life better. But I believe that the intent is to go after the criminals, but when they come in contact with somebody who's here illegally, you know, that's the whole idea of the law. We're going to start a situation that says, well, the law, you broke the law, but I know you don't like that law, so we won't enforce that one. We can't, we, we, we can't go around doing that. If we don't like a law, we need to change it. Uh, and so uh, I guess the, the last thing I would say was, is that I think too often the word immigrant is cast about to talk about people illegally here and people legally here. Someone legally here is an immigrant. Someone illegally here is an illegal alien. There are no undocumented immigrants, undocumented immigrants that I've ever met. They've got more documents than any of us. They've got 
several social security numbers usually and several different matricular consular cards and the list goes on. The last thing there all might be undocumented, but we need to start having a, a, a careful debate. But this notion that immigrants are in fear, if you're here legally, you have nothing to fear. If people who have broken the law and they're here, I suppose maybe they do have something to fear. You said no more amnesty. President Reagan had an amnesty program, and you said no more uh, because that, uh, it rewards illegal behavior. So if we don't have amnesty, what do we do with 11 million people? Well, I think what we first start doing is not jump to an amnesty. We did that in 1986 with 3 million people. And I was around and watched that happen and didn't really think it was the worst thing that we could do, right? Because you're trying to fix a problem, get your arms around it, and move forward. And I remember then Congressman Schumer talking about how we were really going to enforce the law after we did this big mother of all amnesties, right, in 1986. And then I watched him make it his business to make sure we never enforced any of our laws. Mm -hmm. Now he's Senator Schumer and he's still doing the same thing. But what we would like to see first is that e-verify, have every business be required to check the status. It's, it's an online system. It, it takes, uh, it's a voluntary system now. We need to go after the businesses who hire illegal immigrants. If there's one thing I could do and one thing only to get my arms around illegal immigration, I would go after the people who hire, who knowingly hire people here. And I think if we do that, if we actually control our border, if we had an entry exit system, which every other developed country has, and a third of illegal immigrants come in on visas legally or tourist visas and never leave. So we need an entry-exit system. And I would use, and I would use the, the law enforcement, local law enforcement, to help us with immigration law. And I'm not talking about stopping someone for driving Hispanic or stopping someone for driving Asian or whatever. But the way you change behavior is that there has to be a consequence. I will assure you low-income people in America are suffering the consequence of eight million people, many of them taking the job they used to have and driving down their wages. I can assure you they understand the consequence, but people have to have a consequence for breaking our law. So we've been talking about this for- and I would like to use local law enforcement so when someone comes in contact with the law for some other reason, and they find out that they are a citizen mm -hmm. with a, you know, on the run, or someone illegally here, uh, then they would take them into custody, but not shaking, not, in other words, uh, kick doors down or any of that kind of thing. Four years we have been talking about this, and I can tell you for a fact that every single politician we've ever had on this program on this topic has said, our Republican and Democrat, have said that our immigration system in America is broken and it desperately needs to be fixed. Dr. Cummins, we've been talking about this. Why is this so politically difficult to get our arms around? I think because the issues are so complex that are involved. I mean, the question of legality and illegality is not an easy question to answer. The question of what to do with 11 million people who are here undocumented, almost half of which have US citizen or DACA eligible children. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, it's just not that easy to decide how to address this problem. The 86 reform, there's, the reforms typically have a carrot and a stick. The carrot was legalization. I don't really like to call it amnesty because they don't just poof, make people citizens. You still have to go through the process to become a citizen. You have to pay the fees that are associated. You have to take the tests and learn English like, like any other, anyone else. 
um, who wants to become, who wants to naturalize, become a citizen. But the care, the stick was E-Verify. I mean, the stick was that we would crack down on employers. It was sort of pre-E-Verify, but the notion that was the documentation. That was not followed through upon. At the same time, you have U.S. businesses here welcoming immigrants in and not asking too closely whether they are legal residents or not. So there are a lot of interests involved, a lot of people want things that they don't want to be clear about, and it's very difficult to come up to come together. And when it comes to public policy, the vast majority of Americans don't understand our even our legal immigration system. It's true. We we have over a million legal immigrants come here. And evidently our legal Im uh, Im immigration system is very difficult and very time-consuming to navigate. Uh, you also have to have a specific set of requirements. You have to have a family member right. here or you have to come with some sort of workplace. We have two other panels of people that I have to get to before we open the microphones up to the public part of this conversation. But I did want to ask you, Ron, your organization uh, says that uh, illegal immigration costs North Carolina taxpayers 1.75 billion with a B dollars every year. How so? Well, the biggest cost. Uh, you can go on our website, uh, nclisten.com, and read the report. Uh, Federation for American Immigration Reform. Uh, it's a study they did. We we lightly part partnered with them. The biggest expense to illegal immigration. Um, is basically education. Education is very expensive. Uh, most illegal immigrants, not all, but most people who come here illegally are poorly educated and low-skilled, statistically. doesn't make them bad people, but that's what it is. And most people who are low-skilled don't make as much money as people who are higher-skilled. And so they're, 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 we have the same problem with poor people in America. Uh, you know, someone shouldn't feel bad about being poor, but if you're going to look at a tax situation, and we don't want to tax people who are poor very much, right, because they don't have very much money. So uh, people who are poor generally don't pay their way. It doesn't make them bad people. It just is what it is. That's why we generally want to tax people who are wealthy more. They've got more money and more ability to pay more taxes. So the general reason illegal immigration is costing our state so much money is because the services that are used uh, are much higher than the taxes that are being paid. Um, and so that's sort Aside of what... Aside public what education and possibly emergency room health care, what would the services be? Pardon? Aside from public education and possibly emergency room services, what would those services be that they're, that they're well, using? Well, well what, what, what some of the other services are is that when people come here illegally and decide to do their family planning after they come to the country illegally, uh, obviously they're going to have a child if they want to have a child and they have the child here, the child is an automatic citizen. Right. Then the child is eligible for all these services. So I, under, I understand, okay. I do, why people who want to come here, not all, but many, do their family planning. So when they get here in Wake County, where I live, uh, Wake Med is paying for a lot of the cost. The child gets medic, all, the, all the benefits. The mother gets prenatal care. I'm not saying people shouldn't get, should, shouldn't get prenatal care, but there's a cost associated when people come in in large numbers in violation of our laws, and they, they are driving down wages. My wife and I have worked with a homeless program for over a decade, and the poor people in America are suffering because of illegal immigration. They, they don't have much money in the first place, and we've got an oversupply of labor at the low end 
which is driving down wages. It is, it is what it is. I've researched now, this in great detail. Uh, the Economic Policy Institute, I, I, I could give you I, books I, of sources on this. Tom? I, I do need to step in on this for two things. Uh, I want to go first, Mr. Woodard, to your point about polls. You're right. About what? About polls, you do have to ask questions about where they come from. You're right. But on that same point, you have to ask questions about taxes. Mm -hmm. Because what your calculations seem to be missing here, and this is important specifically for a state like North Carolina, that has dramatically shifted its tax policy from income tax to sales tax. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter your status. If you're buying gas or you're buying food, mm -hmm. you are contributing. And I also just... It, it, one of these so you're suggesting that sales tax pays all these costs? No, but I'm saying that the number of one point, and forgive me, I don't want to misquote it, right, right. more than a billion dollars, I'm not so sure. Well, we, we, in, the, in the report, even if, excuse you me, but disagree But with if it. you're employed, and you are employed even with a fake Social Security number, you're paying taxes. You're paying state and federal income tax. And that's actually the well, second thing I wanted to bring up, which is you said if, well, you, if you're here it, over a specific amount of time, you almost have to have a fake ID well, or a fake Social Security number, which would inherently mean that you're paying systems in. The only reason I bring it up, and I get your point, mm -hmm. and I do appreciate it, mm -hmm. but I do think that it's easy to jump to these conclusions economically when it's not that clear cut. And, and with that, that is a complicated well, let me give you Let me give you no, another no, no, with report. That, that, with that, we have to cut you off because I've got to move on, and I will bring, we'll bring you Professor back. Johnson did a study at UNC and basically backed up what we said. That's fair. We will bring back Ron Woodard and Margaret Cummins, and uh, Tom Bullock will stay with us. We'll bring, we'll bring them back a little bit later on uh, in the program. And later we'll hear some of the stories of people directly impacted by this. Radio listeners, by the way, can reach us through email at charlottetalks at wfae.org, on Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag WFAE. Uh, PubCon. Uh, up next, the perspective of law enforcement on all of this. Charlotte Talks Public Conversation continues on WFAE in 90 seconds. This is a special two-hour edition of Charlotte Talks, a public conversation, immigration policy in the Queen City. I'm Mike Collins. President Trump's executive orders on immigration elicited response from public officials around the country and raised questions about what so-called sanctuary cities would do in the face of Mr. Trump's tougher stand. Charlotte Mayor Jennifer Roberts told us on this program that Charlotte is not one of those cities. Charlotte has never described itself as a sanctuary city. And we have not said that we're going to ignore deportation orders. In fact, the state passed a law um, prohibiting sanctuary cities in North Carolina. And we are complying with state and federal law. So we want to be a welcoming city um, within state and federal law. Many in the immigrant community were unsatisfied with the mayor's comments, and marchers in Marshall Park on Monday called for the mayor to step up. That protest spilled into Monday night city council meeting as about 200 people demanded action from council and the mayor. We see your fear. I would encourage you to raise your voices with our federal officials. Immigration policy Okay, we're going to have to proceed with our meeting. We're going to proceed with our meeting. That meeting did not proceed, though the mayor and council members did meet with protesters in the lobby of the government center. Protesters chanted, do something, you have the power. 
but the city insists it doesn't have the power. That rests in federal and state law. But CMPD Chief Kerr Putney told us on this program a couple of weeks ago, local law enforcement will not embark on a hunting expedition to target and round up people who are here without documentation. And he acknowledged the fear running through the community. We're hearing legitimate fear from people who are worried about the status of their parents, and uh, they're thinking that um, the application of the immigration, uh, the enforcement of the immigration laws will, uh, you know, tear their family apart. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is just what I'm telling you. We're trying to make sure they understand that is not our role. Our job is to continue to um, uh, make sure the city's safe and all community members are safe as well. If you're not committing crimes in our jurisdiction, you're not going to have a, uh, an issue with us around your immigration status. The other thing, Mike, is I'm not here to thumb my nose at the federal government. Uh, many of the federal agencies are very good partners of ours, which help us uh, improve the safety and maintain safety in our city. Uh, however, the confusion is around what our role is in enforcing those immigration laws, and we don't have one. If there is no trust, and in some of our communities, Latino communities and some of our black communities, if they don't have a high level of trust of us, they're not going to report things to us that they see criminal or otherwise. Anytime you feel somebody is intent on randomly taking your freedom, uh, they're going to be suspicious of you. Again, Chief Putney says CMPD does not have a role in enforcing federal immigration laws. In fact, despite the participation of the Mecklenburg County Sheriff's Office in the federal government's 287G program, they say they have no role in enforcing federal law outside the jail. So in this portion of the program, we get the perspective of law enforcement, talk about the role of various agencies, and hear about advice being given to those who may have to interact with law enforcement officials. Erwin Carmichael is the Mecklenburg County Sheriff. He joins us on the stage now. He is here with Atenas Barola, Director of and Managing Attorney at the Immigration Integration Center, part of the Latin American Coalition. Welcome back. And Tom Bullock is also here. He remains from WFAE News. We requested that someone from ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, join us on the program tonight, but unfortunately no one we spoke with was permitted to speak on microphone. So let me begin with you, Sheriff Carmichael. According to CMPD Chief Kerr Putney, his department does not enforce federal laws. That's up to the FBI and several other federal agencies. Do you take a similar stand at the Sheriff's Department? Absolutely. The program that we have, the 287G, it needs to be closer. Good. The program that we have, the 287G, I'm responsible, responsible for safety and security for a million people in this county. The, when someone comes into our jail, the only way they're ever going to have contact with this program, they have to be arrested. They have to commit a crime. Once they commit a crime, they're brought down. Uh, if they, we ask two questions. Were you, where were you born and where are you a citizen? And we want to know if they were not born in the United States or not a citizen, we got to know who they are. Is for safety and security. So that's the requirement of 287G that you ask who they are and where they were born and are they a citizen? Right. What if they say, I was born in Guadalajara and no, I'm not right. a citizen? What then happens then? From there, now we're, they're going to be, they're going to enter into the 287G program to identify exactly who they are. We got to know who is coming inside our facilities, who is in the community, and the 287G program is a federal database that we're able to run them through. We have no action 
in regards to t detaining them, that is strictly up to ICE. We're able to identify exactly who they are. Has anything changed in the way you operate that program since Inauguration Day on January 20th? Absolutely not. Since 2006, nothing has changed. You Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I, I just want to follow up on that because when I was trying to run down numbers for uh, arrests and detained um, illegal immigrants here, um, I, I got a press relief release from your office that said, you know, we're not going to comment on 287G because there are potential changes going on. And you're saying there are no changes whatsoever. In our operation. Okay. Our operation inside the jail. But do you still, um, if ICE calls and says hold, do you comply with that order or that request? Yes. If they, from there, if they put a hold on the person, then yes. But they have only 72 hours. So to be clear, 287G is a voluntary program. Not every sheriff's department or police department in the country participates in this. We do because we opted into it, and I believe we are compensated for that. Is that correct? Yeah. Why did we opt in? Well, you know, I look at it in regards to safety and security because, again, we have to know who's coming in our facilities, who's in our community. We want to know they may be on the terrorist watch list. The only way we're going to be able to identify this person is through this program. So the New York Times reports that the two memos released by the Department of Homeland Security, which is the parent agency of ICE and the Border Patrol, provides details on how it will carry out its plan to guard our southern border, as well as, quote, speedier deportations and greater reliance on local police officers. Has your office or CMPD been contacted by ICE or the Department of Homeland Security to participate in a greater way in this effort? Absolutely not. And, you know, that's why it's like the social media. There's so much... Uh, information that's out there that people are putting they're saying that we're involved in roundups we're involved in enforcement outside of our facilities absolutely not my deputies do not participate in anything other than inside our facility we only have eight deputies that are trained that work the 287g inside the program and like I said the only way to have contact with them you're going to have to be arrested and brought into our facility. You've had to commit a crime. And, and the people who are in your jail being asked those questions, uh, where were you born and are you a citizen, are not there because they were rounded up by ICE or other federal authorities. They are there because they, were committed, they committed a crime, a local crime, and were arrested by local law enforcement. That is correct. Has the number of people that you uh, ask that question of changed substantially over the last several years? Not substantially has not changed substantially since these executive orders have come through either? No. Okay. Uh, under 287G, uh, uh, you're asking these questions. Are you referring more people to uh, the government? Or did some, did some people used to slip out or slide because of the different approach that the Obama administration took to what the Trump administration is now taking? Everything is still the same. I mean, when we come in, we're going to do the interview process. We're going to identify who they are, and then it's up to ICE. That's what I'm saying. Is ICE now saying, because the rules have changed or the approach has changed, are more people being are, – are you being asked to hold more people because the approach has changed? That's the question. There's not as – I mean, substantially, no. I mean, if they uh, – we're not holding – we're not filling up our facilities with – People on holds, it's 72 hours. Now, people that are brought in, 
once they're brought in and we identify who they are, it's entirely up to ICE. And then ICE is normally going to remove them from our facility. Chief Putney of CMPD said that one of the things he relies on in all of the communities, not just the immigrant community, the African-American community, the white community, those people who live in Myers Park, Ballantyne, et cetera, is trust. And in a part of the conversation that we had that you didn't hear a minute ago, he said, you know, when, when the federal government said, if, if, if you see something, say something, nobody's going to say anything if they think that they're going to be arrested when they come forward. So it's all about trust. Does 287G and your, your department's participation in it erode trust? I mean, I would, uh, I look at it, we're doing the same thing we were in 2006. Nothing has changed. If you are arrested, you've committed a crime, you're brought into our facility, we're going to identify who you are. Tom. That, yeah, and I just want to put some context in here. We're talking about 287G and, and you know, handing over to ICE and stuff like that. When I was asking questions about the hold, the reason is simple. Uh, under this, and it's a voluntary program, um, ICE agents can call and say, hey, that's somebody that we want. Keep them there at your facility. 72 hours, although it's voluntary, to keep them longer. Um, since 2006, I believe um, there have been a just shy, what is it, 8,441 uh, deportations from Mecklenburg County under the, under the program. That's actually relatively uh, on the lower end of the 30 or so municipalities that take part in this program. The highest, this will surprise no one, Maricopa County, Arizona, where Joe Arpaio was a sheriff for quite some time. But fascinating to me is the fact that the new sheriff in Maricopa County is pulling back from 287G. He's ending the program because there were lots of, well, hey, you know, and, and I understand, and thank you, I, it's always nice to be applauded, but. Uh, I don't think you were being applauded. <laughs> here's here's, here's the, the interesting thing. He's worried about this being morphed into something more of the, instead of stop and frisk, it's stop and show me your papers. Mm -hmm. I know that you don't have the patrols, but you have eight officers, eight sheriff deputies, so what is that, six deputies, two supervisors, I think, under the, under the guidance of the program, that could potentially be called to do this under this, the, the current MOA, the Memorandum of Understanding, or Memorandum of Agreement. Would you be willing to do that if called upon to do that, to actually okay your deputies to go out because they could, they could be called on to do so? Right now, my deputies are restricted inside the facility. That's it. But, I'm, not, I'm not interested in them going out because I, my whole but it, goal. But if it put your participation in 287G at jeopardy, would you then say, okay, well, we'll do this? That's something that we would have to evaluate. Right now, I'm, I, have no, I have no interest in that. I want to know who is in our facility, who is in our community. So That's he, the purpose. He, he keeps them in the jail. He doesn't round them up. The sheriff's department does not, or office does not round them up. But, Tom, there have been reports, <clears throat> excuse me, of ICE and other agencies rounding up individuals at bus stops, homes, and places of business. Mm -hmm. How much of that is true, and how much of that is simply rumor being spread by social media? You know, here's the thing. I don't think anybody can actually fairly answer that. I mean, there's a couple of things that are, that are at play here. Um, number one, um, what started as rumor has now been seen as fact. These are not the same raids that we saw in the 80s or 90s, but they are, ICE at least will say, we are targeting specific individuals, but we also have anecdotal stories of people who just happen to be near them also getting swept up in this. It's 
it's tricky to kind of figure out because the tactics are a bit different. We're not talking about raiding, you know, a textile mill. We're talking about, uh, again, the story that I gave earlier about a, a place where day laborers gathered. There, it's tough to call into to, to know specifically whether it's just from. Atenas Borolas sitting here very quietly, managing attorney with the Immigration Integration Center. What has been your experience with your clients? I mean, I think we can see that there's a clear difference in the way that ICE is behaving and that ICE has behaved. We do have confirmed reports of people being picked up between home and work, between home and school, right outside of their workplace. Now, I'm not saying that this did not happen before, but we saw several weeks ago where there was coincidentally a national action by ICE that picked up what was like 680 people in a couple of days. I mean, these are clear, changed, increased tactics that ICE is taking that create fear in the community. It's not just about arresting the person, it is about creating fear in the community and scaring and really terrorizing these communities. One of the things that you have stressed is that everyone in the United States has rights, including uh, immigrants, mm -hmm. under the United States Constitution, regardless of immigration status. And Carrie on Twitter uh, asks a question that I was going to ask. What are the rights of undocumented immigrants? So there are some basic rights that every person in the United States, regardless of whether they're undocumented, they're documented, they're a citizen, they're an LPR, has. That is, A, if they are home, the right to not open the door to law enforcement without a valid warrant, B, to identify themselves but not have to provide any other information if they're being stopped without reasonable cause. Law enforcement officials have to have reason to suspect that somebody is undocumented or is violating immigration laws before they arrest them. What we've seen in these recent arrests is that at least 25% of the arrests that ISIS are committing now are collateral, what they call collateral. Meaning? So that means people who do not have a removal order who have no criminal record, but who just happen to be standing next to the person who ICE was looking for. So I would say then that most of the, a lot of the people that you deal with are not aware of their rights. Would that be accurate? I think that is accurate, and that is why we are engaging in a concerted effort to educate the community about How are you their doing rights. That? Are, is, uh, Latino radio and, and uh, publications, are they pu publishing this information? They are. Attorneys are going out right and left doing this. I mean, I've been to schools, I've been to churches, I've been on the radio, I've been on TV, trying to educate people about their rights. We do not want to encourage people to break the law, but we do encourage people to exercise their rights, which are given by the Constitution. You're a lawyer. You can't encourage people to break the law. Correct. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the other rights, too, that I think is important to bring up is the right of due process. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to be an American citizen to have that right. You right. just uh, that's, and that's actually one of the key things. And what's one of the more curious, and I'd love to hear what you think about this, one of the more... Um, I honestly think it's one of the more underreported um, aspects of the second memo expedited that came out. Removal. That's exactly what I was going to say, expedited removal. Mm -hmm. um, it used to be my understanding, you're the, the lawyer, I'm sure you can please correct me actually if I'm mm -hmm. wrong, but it used to be something that was used within about 100 miles of the southern border mm -hmm. for people who have been in, you know, in the country for 14 days, a little bit longer, a little bit, anyway, mm -hmm. a, sh a relatively short amount of time. Now, um, and this is one of the more difficult things about having a broader aspect of, of immigration control, yeah. they're talking about using it for anybody who's been in the United States illegally for less than two years. 
And expedited removal means you don't get a judge. Mm -hmm. You don't get anything. You basically are just... You're ordered, you're ordered removed, you're ordered deported. And the important thing about this is that the Supreme Court has actually found that immigrants have the right to a hearing before a judge to fight for their case before they are deported. That is a due process right that's in the Constitution. And these implementation memos have essentially, or they're trying to get rid of that for anyone caught anywhere in the United States, say, okay, if you've been here for less than two years, you have no due process, you have no right to go before a judge, we can deport you. And now here's the flip side of this. We are, we are still talking about criminals. We are. I know, it's a I know it's a touchy thing, but let's acknowledge that because that, that is, if I'm here to try to help us walk the straight and narrow, it is an important thing to, allow me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, th that is a fair point to bring up. But the other side to this too is if you go through this expedited removal process, mm -hmm. you're, uh, you know, right now we're under a federal hiring freeze. Mm -hmm. Right now, here in Charlotte, we have an immigration court. There aren't that many in the country. I think it's 30 some, and we've got one. Yeah, we've got one here. Um, the, the current backlog of cases is astounding. It's years. Mm -hmm. So with this broader sweep, if, if, if that's a fair way to say it, you're adding to this caseload. So it's one of the things that the memo pointed out is we can skip this step. And that is, in fact, this, these are not my words. These are the words of the head of the, you know, what are they, uh, Immigration Judge Association, mm -hmm. that they are concerned about this because of the precedent that it would set. Right, so first of all, I'd just like to remind everyone that certain immigration violations are civil yep. violations. They yes. are not criminal that is violations. Absolutely true. That is absolutely true. So, you know, it's the same thing as like, what other civil violations are there? Traffic citation, are we going to call everybody but who speeds was, a criminal? Well, but I did say broke the law. And when I, when I got you, my speeding ticket. You said they are criminals. All right, you did not say they broke the law. Enough. You said they were criminals. You're right. Clearly, this so. is very confusing. <laughs> no, no, she's um. right. She's right. She's right. But so let me, let me answer the question. So, yes, I mean, this expanding expedited removal to people who have been here within two years, it's essentially the administration trying to bypass the law. That is what they are doing. There is a huge backlog, as you said, in the immigration courts. And, you know, as it is, they need more money to hire more immigration judges. Instead, where does that money go? So when the president Important. says that he's going to round the bad hombres up and get them out, he can't just get them out. He can't just put them on an airplane and send them away. Is that correct? They have to have due process. He can? He can. That's the truth. What happened to due process? Well, that's that is a thorny issue here. Is you're setting a precedent. There are lots of things. There are there are laws, and then there are rules, and then there are the way those rules are implemented. And okay. it sounds arcane, but the way that you the way that government works, and the laws can work, and the policies can change, mm -hmm. that is that is a fact. So he there is precedent for this. What I was talking about, and I believe what we were both agreeing on, is it is a dangerous precedent to set. Mm. That doesn't make it illegal. It makes it a dangerous precedent to set. I would argue it's illegal. Well, the Supreme uh, Court has found that immigrants outside of this small radius have the right to a hearing before a judge. That's, that's all. That's fair. That's fair. So, so clearly, this is con confusing on so many different levels, and it's been confusing because things have been happening so quickly at the, in Washington, D.C., and filtering down through the community through various sources, including social media, which is not always right about things. When we come back with this group of people, I, I want to talk about um, something we talked about earlier in our conversation a couple of weeks ago at Dennis, and that is these orders of supervision. This is, mm -hmm. this is something that people comply with because they're trying to be good, and if they comply with it now, they may be at risk. We're going to take a break for station identification because we obey the law, 
And we'll come back in 60 seconds to get an answer to, to that question and more. We're back. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and 90.3 WFHE. It's a special edition of Charlotte Talks. Immigration policy in the Queen City. It's a public conversation from a glowing theater at Spirit Square. We're talking to Sheriff Irwin Carmichael from the Mecklenburg County Sheriff's Office at Tennis Barola, uh, Director and Managing Attorney of the Immigration Integration Center at Latin America Coalition, and Tom Bullock from WFAE News. Let's talk about these. There are, there are a group of immigrants who have been allowed to stay in the country mm -hmm. under something called an order of supervision, under which they have to check in periodically with their supervisor. It's not unlike a parolee who has to check in with his parole officer, and if he doesn't, he's broken the law, and they'll come and get him and round him up and put him in jail. Right. So these folks who are trying to comply with this, I'm told, are a little afraid to comply with this because they're afraid if they appear, they will be arrested. Is that right? Right. So a disturbing new trend that we've seen is that people who are complying with their order of supervision check in. And to be clear, people who have orders of supervision are people who either have an expedited removal order or otherwise have a removal order, a deportation order. And they have a rule saying, okay, every so often you have to go to ICE. What has started happening recently is that certain of those people are now being detained. They comply with what ICE has asked them to do, and when they go to ICE, instead of saying, okay, you did what we asked you, we know you're here, thank you, go on your way, we'll see you in a couple months, they are now being detained, arrested, and potentially deported. And that's something very troublesome for the community. Even President Trump has said he doesn't want to be uh, hard-hearted about this, and he's specifically mentioned splitting up families. That concerns him. And obviously, if he's talking about, maybe talking tonight about the possibility of compromise, that maybe came into play during some of this. But there are people in the immigrant community who are in the United States and who risked life and limb to get here because they were fearful of mm -hmm. staying in their native country and that if they get deported back, some of them feel that they will be targets, targeted for having chickened out and come here in the first place. How many of the people that you deal with fear for their lives should they be deported? Lots. Um, it's number. hard, I mean, it's hard to, to, let's say, for example, of recent entries. So people who have entered since 2014, there's been something like, I don't know, 50 to 60,000 families who have come. About 90% of those since mid-2015 have been found to have a credible fear of return to their country by the U.S. government and are then allowed to pursue their claims. So that's what, like 25,000 every year for the past couple of years, and those are the people that the government catches, and just mothers and children. So, so I'm not- Sheriff, have you or others in your office, others of your officers, heard these stories from people in your jails? In regards to- In, in regards to being a f fearful of going home, of being deported, because they, they will be targeted and they will be killed. We've, we've heard that, we've heard the stories of it, and but uh, again, with us, I mean, it's, uh, a lot of folks think that we're out there involved in roundups and all that. We're not. You're not. All we do is it's strictly we have the jail model, and all we do is identify who's in there. Then everything else is up to ICE, what they do. We want to know who's inside our facilities. 
In this segment, we get personal. Laws governing immigration are certainly necessary, but policy impacts people. We've been talking about our broken immigration system for a very long time, during which many people have skirted the laws and crossed the border to build better lives. These are the people who will be affected by changes in policy, and we're going to hear some of their stories. Oliver Marino has one of those stories, his own. Born in Mexico, he immigrated to the United States in 1999. He has two brothers. They, both, they all three have been covered by DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which is a policy started by the Obama administration allowing certain illegal immigrants who entered the country as minors to receive a renewable two-year period of deferred action from deportation. Mr. Marino is a board member at the Latin American Coalition, also a member of Comunidad Colectiva. I hope I said that correctly. You got it. Uh, close. The group that helped organize the Day Without Immigrants. Welcome back to the program, Oliver. Thank you for having me. He joins us with Rebecca Costas, an ESL teacher at Myers Park High School. Welcome to you. Thank you. And Elham Rabai, Rabai uh, is an immigration lawyer who is also an Iranian Muslim. Welcome to you. Thank you. And Tom Bullock is sitting here as well. <laughs> Oliver, you came here with your parents. Uh, you and your brothers are now covered under DACA. Is your status as a resident of the United States in jeopardy today? Do you feel that it is? Let's put it that way. Well, first of all, before I begin to say anything, I just want to echo the words of Eli Wiesel. Uh, he's a Holocaust survivor who said, no human being is illegal when we use illegal immigrant. Um, This is a word that is used to dehumanize and criminalize somebody's existence. And so that's a, that's a word that I, I don't use and I don't recommend somebody using, especially when you're talking about a person, a human being. Um, in terms of whether I'm, um, what was your question? Second again? <laughs> uh, do you feel that your status as a resident of the United States is in jeopardy under the Trump administration? Well, first of all, um, uh, you know, I've been living in North Carolina for 18 years. Uh, when I travel outside of North Carolina, this is the place that I call home. Uh, even though this country sometimes, um, the relationship with me and this country is difficult sometimes. Uh, but uh, for me, uh, I've always considered North Carolina home. Uh, and for the, you know, I'm, I'm protected under uh, deferred action, but my parents are, are still undocumented. Uh, many of the people that I love and I care about are undocumented, and the fear and the concern um, is very real in the streets of Charlotte. Um, and so a lot of people are afraid of what's going to happen. So I'm, I'm, more, I'm more concerned about what's going to happen to them than what's going to happen to me. Technically, you are what is called a dreamer, but you don't like to use that term. Why not? Yeah, so first of all, dreamer is a term that was used to describe somebody that was included in a failed um, uh, bill that was introduced to Congress more than 10 years ago. So one is very old, and this is a term that um, is described to, to, uh, for, for people that were brought here as young people. Uh, and oftentimes the narrative is that they were brought here younger, right, and the blame is placed on the parents. Uh, I don't blame my parents for bringing me here. My parents are the original dreamers. These are the people that believe, uh, and that believe for... <laughs> they believe uh, in a second chance, uh, in a better life, the way that Irish dreamed of that better life, the way that 
uh, the Germans dream of a better life, the when the Italians dream of a better life coming to the U.S. So that's a term that I don't agree with because it separates our community and places this narrative of good immigrants versus the bad immigrants. Uh, I, don't, I don't consider my, my parents or the people that are outside of this DACA program as bad immigrants. So it wasn't your decision to come here. You were only 10 when you arrived. What would it be like for you to have to go back to Mexico? Well, like I said, this is, this is the place that I consider home, North Carolina. So it wouldn't be easy. I don't, I don't have family, uh, close family uh, here in the U.S. other than my mom and my dad. I don't keep in touch with a lot of other family. But a lot of people take a very hard line on this. They say illegal is illegal, that we are a nation of laws. Our laws have got to be obeyed. And if you come in here illegally... You have broken our laws from the get-go. You could have applied for citizenship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As somebody who organized a day without immigrants, what do you say to those people? Well, I would say think about where you came from, right? Uh, oftentimes, people ask me uh, where I'm from, and I tell them I'm, I'm Mexican, right? Uh, white people here in the South, they tell me like an equation. I'm like one-fifth German, one-fifth like Irish. Uh, right, think about where you're from and where your ancestors came from, right? Unless you're Native American uh, or African American, you came here by choice. Your ancestors came here by choice, right? This country, this country was founded on colonization and stealing the land of someone else, right? So to call somebody uh, like not having the right uh, to exist in this country, um, one, it's, uh, it's very hypocritical. Uh, and so, you know, I just ask them to, to think about where, where your ancestors came from. So there are people reaching out and trying to figure out compromises and ways forward, and we don't know what the president's going to suggest tonight in his uh, speech to the joint session of Congress, but he is allegedly going to talk a little bit about immigration. Would you be okay with a path to citizenship for children who came here as children for people who came here as children because their parents brought them, if it didn't include a pathway to citizenship for their parents? Well, one, I'm not willing to throw away or like put my community under like the bus, right, to mm -hmm. save myself. Uh, I think we're all in this struggle together. Um, to, for people to, that are considering uh, the proposals of uh, President Trump, I think first they have to um, look at what he has said before and in this deportation priorities, what has been outlined, right? Um, he says that people that have DACA are protected, mm -hmm. uh, but my parents under this new deportation priorities are, um, like, they, they are priorities for deportation. I'm not willing to save myself and throw my parents under the bus and for them to be deported uh, while I get, I get to stay in this country. You call North Carolina home. You've, several, you've said it several times tonight, but you've also said that you were not surprised that Americans elected Donald Trump because uh, you've experienced xenophobia. Is that what this is? You've also called it hatred. Which is it? Xenophobia, hatred, or is it just, just a desire to enforce our laws? Well, one, this country has to recognize uh, the hatred uh, the racism, the xenophobia that has built this country. Like, it's always been here. Like, uh, it's nothing new. Now, hopefully, people see it for what it is and understand that they need to fight against it. 
I mean, it, it, that's a really important point here for, for a simple reason, especially when you're coming around times of economic distress for a country. We were talking about it at the very first panel. Um, it's very easy when you have economic stagnation to blame another, to blame someone else, to start wondering what that is. Now, that is part, but not the whole of the immigration issue. But it is... I mean, I've, I follow politics like crazy. And you can watch what seems to be a slow, steady build um, that I think would surprise people to know that, you know, immigration, you know, crossing the border illegally, really slowed down or almost came to a stop after two, around 2009 because the U.S. economy was terrible. You would then have these other upticks going on. You have, you know, unaccompanied minors being sent here. Um, you have all sorts of other things that have happened, but I think that the, the demonization point is absolutely fair. Rebecca Costas is an ESL teacher at Myers Park High School, and sitting in your chair uh, an hour ago, Ron Woodard was here from NC Listen. Uh, <laughs> uh, and NC Listen says that immigration is having a major effect on public education in the state. There are about 90,000 students with limited English proficiency in the state. You have eight students in your classes from eight different countries. Uh, and you say that most students who enter the schools from foreign countries have no English proficiency. So from what you've seen, what kind of a burden does that place on our school system? Okay, well, let me just clarify that in, in one of my classes, in my advanced um, ESL class, I have eight students in that class from eight different countries speaking five different languages. But in my newcomer classes, which are um, the novice level of English proficiency, um, I have roughly 30 students and all but two speak Spanish. Um, and they are primarily from the, you know, the big three Central American countries right now um, where the refugees are coming from, uh, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. And, um, yeah, I think you know what started to be talked about in the in the last panel, and what is not enough a part of the conversation is the push factor that is is bringing them here. Um, these kids write and talk about um, the fear and anxiety that they lived with that was normalized for them in their native countries. Um, they were you know, constantly in, in fear. They felt threatened by gang violence. They had family members who were affected by it. They saw it. Um, and so for them coming here now with, you know, with the current rhetoric and the policies that are uncertain and, and they, they are still feeling threatened and sought after, the gang members have just changed. Are, are, th are these kids that you're talking about undocumented? Are they here legally in some way? Are they uh, considered political asylum refugees, or are they undocumented? Um, yes, a great many of them are undocumented. So, out of our, for the past three years, you know, the majority have been coming from these Central American countries, and I would say probably. 60 to 70 percent of them are undocumented. And you have described the behavior of some of these students as something that approximates, approximates PTSD. Is that because of their experience in their foreign, in their home country, because of the experience that they went through to get here, or because of what they're experiencing now because of the changes in approach by the Trump administration? Um, so I think that they they clearly show these symptoms of acute stress from what they have dealt with, what their journey was like getting here. But instead of being able to to start to deal with those, 
you know, those traumatic experiences and heal, they are kept in this state of, of fear because they are still afraid of being sent back. They are still afraid of being killed. They've shared some of their experiences with you, not only about what was going on that made them want to leave, but their trip here. Uh, what, to your way of thinking, what's the average story like? Um, I can't speak a lot to that. I mean, they, they have mentioned it, but they, they don't go into a lot of detail. They'll tell us things, um, you know, to hint to, to that, the fact that it was very difficult and very dangerous. I did have one student write that the one thing he would not be able to imagine if he were sent back would be that what it took to get here would have been in vain because it was that hard. Yeah. So what has the reaction been? How has it impacted the students in your classroom? What the uncertainty in the community, the fear that we've heard talked about tonight and that we've heard talked about now for weeks, what's it, what's it like for those students? So, I mean, I'll be honest that, um, you know, this year has, has been the hardest in terms of the number of referrals that have been made on our students um, for attendance or behavior or um, just even their motivation in some classes. Um, but we, my colleague and I are 100% convinced that this is because of the, the added stress, the extra layer of uncertainty. Um, you know, the profile of an ESL student is challenging enough, what they, you know, what they have dealt with, what, what their journey was like getting here, but then just being here and trying to navigate an entirely new culture, um, an entirely new language with high school content and the fact that they are teenagers um, <laughs> is, you know, is hard enough. And then to add on this extra layer now of, of like I said, still feeling right. hunted and targeted, except the gang members are now wearing uniforms that say ICE police. And When you say the gang members are now wearing uniforms, you're talking about the police or the ICE no, agents. Ice, the ICE, ICE police, agents. yes. Uh, when we come back, we're going to meet Elham Rabai, who is a, an immigration uh, attorney. And then we'll open uh, the floor to questions as well. We have to take a break at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. At Charlotte Talks, a public conversation on immigration policy in the Queen City from the McGloan Theater, a special two-hour edition live on Tuesday night. For those of you listening on Wednesday morning, you're late. Uh, we're going to talk now with Ilham Rabi'i, who's an immigration attorney who came here from Iran. She's an Iranian Muslim. You came here, I believe, in 1997. Your father came to the U.S. first as a political uh, asylum seeker, and five years later, the rest of your family came, is that right? Yes. So you had to wait five years to make the trip. Yes. How when, when somebody like you who went through channels and waited five years to do so hear about people who slip across the southern border and find a way to stay, what's your uh, opinion of that? What, what do you think we should do about that? Uh, so my opinion is that I can feel through my bones the, the long-time process and the separation that they had to go through, especially that most of these people who come from Central American countries are uh, kids uh, who come with no parents or with one of their parents, which was uh, my situation. Of course, I didn't have a train ride and getting raped by uh, gang uh, members along the way, uh, but I can still feel uh, how they felt of moving from one country to another and being scared. Uh, as to your question of how we can solve the problem, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> if politicians in White House don't know how to solve this problem, 
I don't know as a how uh, as a simple immigration attorney who has been practicing for two years uh, how we can solve this problem. But I do know is that separating families from each other is not a solution. Discriminating against race and religion is not a solution. Mm -hmm. uh, going after people who are not criminals is not a solution. Um, so. We all know this, there is a problem out there, but um, the solution that White House has come out and uh, the solutions that ICE are doing is definitely not a solution. So I, I don't mean to interrupt here, but I think the first solution to stop in this problem is to ending uh, the 287G contract that has already broken so many families here. That's what we're pushing for. Um, Thousands of people, so the sheriff has said that these are criminals. What we know on the ground is that people are being stopped, right? So just because you're accused of a crime doesn't mean that you committed that crime. That's true. Right? So as Comunidad Colectiva, we are pushing for the city leaders, the mayor, Jennifer Roberts, all the city council, I've seen some of the city council people here, uh, to tell the sheriff to end the 287G contract. If you want to build trust in the community, that's the first way to do it. Sheriff, uh, the microphone is yours. We're going out of order, but that's okay. At no point did I ever say criminals. A person has to be arrested so that and brought in to our facility. And then from there, we identify exactly who they are. And People think we're out there arresting folks, bringing them inside the facilities. We're not. All we're doing is identifying exactly who's in our facility. That is it. Then it's up to ICE. You're complying and validating uh, ICE presence here in Charlotte. So what we want as a community is for you to say that ICE should not have any type of activity within the city of Charlotte, within Mecklenburg County. If you want to build trust with the community, if you want the community to trust you as law enforcement, uh, you should end the 287G contract. Again, my position is safety and security of over 1 million people in this county. And I am here to protect this county. And we got to know who's inside our facilities. We got to know who's inside our community. And that 287G is a tool to know who that is. So that's our, that is our purpose. Hey, and I do want to point out uh, one thing with 287G. Yes, voluntary. Um, but the sheriff's elected. He does not answer to the city council. So, and that's exactly. a key point, so, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to quibble here, but that is actually a very key point. No, yeah, that's a, a very important point, right? So if our city well, leaders, as mayor, right, uh, as our city council, do not stand behind the people saying that we, uh, we don't want 287G, then why are you there for, right? So if, if the people itself are saying, the 8,000 people that but marched Oliver, through Uptown Oliver, and shut down are, Uptown are, and said, are, we don't want Oliver, ice in our there are laws on the books. There are laws in the legislature and there are laws uh, at the national level that prevent uh, certain cities from doing certain things. And there's lots of money at stake here if we don't follow the law. Right. So we want the city to stand up just the way that they stood up to rally, the way that they did to, uh, with HB2. Right. Mm -hmm. We haven't heard that type of support uh, for the evening community. And we have to ask why, right? Uh, they're standing up for the businesses, but not for the people themselves. El Amrabi, you have said that, it, uh, that you're not just an immigrant, you're a Muslim, and you said that it seems to have become a norm in this country to consider all Muslims as terrorists, all Mexicans and nationals from Central America as criminals. 
and refugees as a threat to national security. How do you reverse that? How do you make the change? How do you make people see people differently? Well, I think we are all, as humans, uh, we tend to uh, make a judgment or calls when you know, I see down the street and I see a black person. Unfortunately, the first thing that comes to my mind, I will be honest with myself, that I'm like, I wonder if this person is a criminal, right? We are all having to have this judgmental cap in our head. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's because of the society and how we hear everything. Well, we should all put that cap aside, and the first thing that we should see is that we are all humans, right? And put the skin of the color aside, put the religion of the person of the side, and get to know that person, okay? We is, I think just, uh, we come to these judgmental solutions is because we don't come and uh, basically start with ourselves, right? We all, whoever is sitting here, we need to put that aside and start to say, hey, you, you to me look like a threat person. Are you actually a criminal? Are you actually a terrorist? You know, we need to get to know each other. This is the nation of so many different cultures, countries, and religion, but I think at the end of the day, people don't get to know each other. We're going to meet some of the people in our audience and get to know them in just a second. I'm sure they have questions or comments for everybody on this panel, and we will bring everybody back who has participated in the hour thus far as, as guests on the panel and hear from the folks gathered here at the, the McGlowan Theater. And you can also reach us on uh, email at charlottetalks at wfae.org or through Twitter. Use the hashtag uh, WFAEPubCon. We're coming right back. Thanks. 